Cradeline Network. Patrol their way to the Judge Dredd magazine. This episode, we're covering the magazine for March and April 1994. That's volume two, issues 49 to 51. This episode, we'll finish up our previous stories and relaunch into a whole new set of series with Creep, Shimura, Missionary Man, and Judge Anderson's Space Adventures. And if you read along with us, you'll find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, The Complete Case Files 20, Anderson the Sci Files, Volume 2, and the Judge Dredd Magazine, Number 350. How are you doing this time, Eli? I'm doing great. Nice. Yeah, and I'll say if you want to read along. Oh, sorry. And I just want to say a quick programming note before we get started, Eli. And this is for everybody else too. But just we're uh, we're back to three issues per episode per episode here. Basically, because with with issue fifty in volume two, the magazine is uh, still coming out twice a month. But as um, fifty page over fifty pages per issue, and basically, it just came to it. Just seemed to me like that's just a lot of pages for us to cover in a month. Basically, just in terms of me writing recaps and us keeping it all in our heads and stuff like that. I don't know. We'll see. If this episode ends up being really short or really long, maybe readjust it as we go or something like that. But I think in the end, we'll keep this cadence at least until some big events uh, later in the year. Yeah, it should be okay. I don't know. Whatever. Whatever I say. Um, Story one, Judge Dredd. Uh, Two Dread stories this time. Our first one's called Do the Wrong Thing. Script robot Gordon Rennie. Art robot Paul Pert. Coloring robot Peter Smith. Learning robot Tom Frame. This is Rennie's first time writing Dread as the lawman reports into control about a huge heat wave that's been caused by the Mayor Dave Memorial Parade. And Eli, I should, I should tell you that Mayor Dave was a uh, orangutan, orangutan? Yes. Orange, orange ape. You know what I'm talking about. Right. That yes. was... But one, one of them named Dave was briefly mayor of Mega City One uh, in Prague's 366 to 368. Because it's it's a it's a it's a ceremonial position mostly. So you know, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Assassinated on Dred's watch was a oh, whole thing. No. Ah, jeez. Very <laughs> sad. Yeah, no good. <laughs> anyway, at the uh, Danny Aiello block, the heat or the heat is bringing out the worst in people. And this heat wave themed story, um, it, and especially the title and stuff is a reference to the uh, Spike Lee movie, Do the Right Thing. Do the do the right thing instead of the wrong thing, where Danny Aiello was this, uh, what, pizza store owner and racial tensions and things like that. Sp- oh. Spike Lee movie things. A big deal at the time. Yeah, um, yeah it's pretty good. Cla- I, I feel like it's a, it's a pretty classic of like sort of 80s, late 80s filmmaking or something. Um. Anyway, the heat's bringing up the worst in people, and two judges fresh out of the academy are having trouble and needs dreads and, and need dreads help. So dread arrives. Um, 
the air conditioning is out and the heater is stuck in the on position. So it's getting actively hotter and maintenance can't make it until tomorrow because of the parade. Similarly, the parade's soaking up all the backup and stuff. So it's just the three, these three judges on their own. The the uh, the rookies' appeals to community spirit haven't worked, so Dredd, who's looking especially old and grizzled here, just starts firing some shots into the air to disperse everyone. <laughs> um, things get hotter um, and, and hotter as citizens go crazy, and we see some of them being sent to psycho cubes as they like swim in an imaginary pool and stuff like that. And we see another citizen leap to their death just to feel the breeze as they fall to, their, to earth, basically. Ridiculous. Yeah. The citizens one thing away from losing their mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're either, it's like a, any citizen is one thing away from <laughs> like going crazy, rioting, or getting involved in some sort of ridiculous, like self-destructive fad, basically. Right, right. Like, any or declaring war on all neighboring blocks as well just anything it's a powder keg you know (laughs) um judge graham quells a fight over the last cold can of soda in the building's vending machines and the judges check on a couple with a self-powered freezer unit who have frozen themselves to death while on the other end of the spectrum in an elevator citizens were trapped inside and cooked alive at 5 p.m., there's still no backup coming, and the citizens are starting to mass juve gangs just sort of standing around looking at the judges, just waiting for one of them to the fall, like, you know, like like smacking their clubs into the palms of their hands, like it's only a matter of time. <laughs> Things get tense until at almost 8 p.m., one of the judges does pass out from the heat. The juves attack, and the judges prepare to open fire. When at the strike of eight, there's a rumble of lightning, and rain starts to fall as an H-wagon arrives on the scene. The end. <laughs> this is a fun little just sort of slice of life story, I guess. Yeah. Just like, I don't know. Yeah. A good uh, dread story is like one bad day in the mega city or something. Right, like that. exactly. And I, I like that a lot, because it does, I said, the city itself is its own character. And mm-hmm. like little stories like this kind of just remind you like, yeah, things are, they're doing their best guys. Like the judges, even if you don't agree with them, freaking stuff is bananas. Everyone's on very you know, high alert. Anything goes yeah. wrong with anything. People are dying. Like a lot of Absolutely. really fast. Yeah, and I think, I think just, it, I think it pays just re up. It, it pays just occasionally re up like how ridiculous the mega citizens are themselves, right. you know? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah, good times. So let's go to our second Dread story. So he's called Giant, script robot John Wagner, art robot Ian Gibson, learning about Tom Frame. And I'll mention in our in our previous episode, Eli, um, where the lady was like jumped off the side of the building or whatever, another jumper story. That one also had like a white helmeted rookie judge that, that Dread was working with. And um in recent events in um in over in 2000 AD we've seen that actually a whole bunch of rookies like young judges from the academy have basically been moved up sort of to being actively on the street so they're in sort of the white helmet testing period basically um just to make up for losses due to the various apocalypses that have racked the city of mega city 1 the last couple of years you know right. yeah you know they're doing the, this is sort of the 
the counterpoint to getting the ro- trying to get robo judges online or something. Mm, like that. so this right, sort right. of this is sort of an overall story that's going on in in, in Dread at this point. And if I remember, Dread like the rookie because they're too inexperienced, too soft, or whatever. Like- I think he's just very hard and exacting. I think mm. he'll you know as we'll see, he will like a rookie occasionally, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. And, you know, and if one earns his respect, then that'll sort of last a lifetime as well. Right. But, you know. Like, not a bustle. He's very like, everyone's dead. Like, let's get rookies. Don't like that. Let's get robots. Don't like those. So what do we do, Dread? Like, what do you, what's your salute? I mean, he wants humans, but he wants good humans, you know? Right. They're <laughs> slim pickings. A lot of them are dead. It's tough. <laughs> you know, that's what Magruder's trying to say. You know, she's right. trying to say. That you know you're letting you're letting perfect be the enemy of fi- of of uh, finished here you know stuff right. like, like that mm-hmm. anyway um, this time we've so anyway more rookies coming out into the city it's something that they've managed to get around in a with a couple different authors and uh, stories in 2080 and the magazine and this one and this time we've got a rookie that's very special it's young cadet giant. We last saw him four years ago during the events of Necropolis, um, and I should say, Eli, that generally because I don't because you weren't you weren't here for Necro- or Necropolis was right before the magazine started, and we did and we talked about some of it, but I don't know if we went into Giant that heavily. But basically, when 2000 AD, sort of the the mother comic from this um, from from the magazine started, they had a story called uh, Harlem Heroes, which was a a, a sport a, a sci-fi sports comic about uh dudes on jetpacks who played a sort of basketball esque game. They were, you know, the team was called the Harlem Heroes. There was like an African American team and stuff. Oh, it's kind of interesting. And um the lead and like the star player was this guy named Giant, basically. Mm-hmm. And that comic took place in one tw- in like 2050, I think. And so partway through the early days, of the comic, they're like, oh, wouldn't it be funny because to have Harlem Heroes take place actually in the past of Judge Dredd so that 50 years later we could see an old giant with his son who's joined the Justice Department that becomes like and so was introduced. We had Judge Giant, who was basically a rookie then in like the 70s, basically, who Dredd also took out on his rookie run and stuff like that and then became one of dread's main um like not sidekicks partner or like you know judge that like reoccurring judge basically like sort of like hershey is sometimes too where it's like um you know we're in a crowd scene we need dread to talk to other judges like oh here's one he knows like here's like giants there okay sure why not you know but then, um, and he was a big player in a in a big mega epic called Judge Cal and stuff like that. But then, um, in the run up to the invasion of Mega City One by East Meg One by the Soviets, <laughs> these communist guys, um, the first Judge Giant was killed by a by a so by a, the assassin Orlock we met in Childhood's End and stuff like that. Sort of, as part of his plan to destroy the city, he also killed Judge Giant. And that was a bummer. And then a couple years later, we met Judge Giant's son, 
who we fathered um, illegally, actually. Like, judges aren't supposed to have kids or have re- right. romantic relationships. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about that. Like, I, I assume there was some sort of, like, limit on reproducing. Like, hey, we, we got population to worry about. We can't have you having kids. Or nah, I think it's more of a system being like, yeah, you're a judge full time. Like, you don't have time for freaking. Yeah. Like your romance. your main love should be the law, that kind of <laughs> stuff. You know, right. not quite like Jedi stuff, but like close mm-hmm. to Jedi stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we found Judge Giant and Giant um, was an orphan who was then entered into the Justice Department. His mother was killed by... Um, like snuff filmmakers, like people who make films while killing people for real. And that and they like right. killed Giant's mom or something like that. And Giant getting revenge and stuff was part of his early stories. Mm. And so Dredd's been sort of involved with Giant's career sort of then. And then in Acropolis as well. In Acropolis, you know, the dark judges took over the city and killed a lot of judges and kids the academy. But Giant was part of a group of of a cove cadets from the academy that like survived and you know made their way through the wreckage of the city and stuff like that. Right. So anyway, all all that to say that he's this sort of long-term uh Judge Dredd character who's the son of another Judge Dredd character that Dredd also took out on his rookie patrol. So this is sort of, you know, shades of shades of that and stuff like that. Right. So we're going back in here and this is also kind of a funny legacy story because this same art team of John Wagner, Ian Gibson, and Tom Frame also did uh, uh, worked on the original uh, c- Cadet Giant story, like way like way back in the seventies. So there's some fun sort of you know again rhyming elements here, or just sort of like coming back to old stories and stuff. That thing's kind of interesting. So yeah, you can only do when you're in a comic in its like seventeenth year, I guess. Right. Right. <laughs> anyway, okay. I'm sorry. A lot of backstory going to this one, but I, th- I, I think it adds to the story. That's what people are here for, right? Yeah, come on. Listen, if there's one thing I know about nerds, it's that they love talking about how these comics connect to each other. Right. And like, you know, how backstory and world building connects everything to work together and stuff. Um, Yeah. So Judge Giant, we, um, and he, we last saw him four years ago and now he's fist bumping his fellow cadets as he heads out on his rookie patrol. We see his lawgiver matched to his palm prints and he gets his white helmet and half badge, which are the marks for rookie judge, and then goes to meet his supervisor, Judge Dredd. (laughs) Um, Of course, yeah, like I said, because Dredd was a close comrade of Giant's dad, he's rooting for Giant here. And we learned that uh, Cadet Giant is 15 years old. We see some Academy judges recap his backstory um, and then say that he's at 15. He's the youngest rookie judge ever. And the teachers wonder if he can take the stresses of being a judge. But if anybody can, it's Cadet Giant. <laughs> yeah. Giant reflects on the age he sees in Dredd's face and the faith that he put in the younger judge years ago in their previous stories. They arrive on a place called Hate Street and begin to enforce the law. Giant goes after a runner that goes immediately as Dread checks on the locals. The runner starts shooting at Giant, and Giant takes him out with a ricochet round. And I want to point out, actually, Eli, there's a really cool sound effect of the ricochet bullet when it bounces off the wall, and it goes like splang, right? Right. Yeah. And it kind of looks like it's like hitting the wall and then bouncing off like 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 a, a drip of rubber or something like that. I think mean, that's kind of fun. Um, 
Yeah. He arrests the perp and uh, runs the others in for questioning and then notices some movement in a window. Judges burst into that apartment in a crime swoop because judges can just sort of kick down your door and turn the place out and search your apartment if they feel like it, basically. Right. And when they do, they find an illegal private movie house inside showing snuff films. Giant gives the proprietor 15 years and afterwards, Dredd questions him about it. And Giant explains that while he's not quite taking these kind of crimes personally, he does think that watching these sort of ultra violent, you know, re- actually violent movies leads to more crime and should be sort of, you know, st- stepped on a little bit. Like, let's sort of be harsh for these kinds of crimes. And Giant compliment and a dread compliments his fervor for it. Like, hey, like, come on. We all got to be crazy about one kind of crime in, in Mega City. Well, and that's what makes us judges, you know. Uh, <laughs> and then they get a call for a 99 Red, which is a judge in trouble. They hop on their bikes and arrive to find a giant robot attack in the city. Oh, no. <laughs> the, bot, the bot is stomping people by the shed load, singing old Call Me Kenneth fight songs, which was this Call Me Kenneth was this robot that was the leader of a robot uprising in the very early days of, of, of Judge Dredd, Eli. Actually, also that story had these had the same creative team as well. So sort of, again, just doing these nostalgia moves yeah because you because you've got wagner and gibson on on the comic i guess so might as well you know talk about some old stuff basically it's a heavy metal kid that's the name of this kind of robot dread's bike cannon does nothing but it seems the giant has been paying attention to how these robots work and he goes to use a grappling hook bullet to swing aboard the robot he just barely makes it slipping and sliding over the machine but when he lands, the unit's robot driver gets the drop on him and is about to kill him when Dread takes it out with a long-distance armor-piercing shot. The robots stop and the day is saved, but Giant climbs down knowing that he's failed because he had to be saved by Dread. But when he gets to the ground, Dread just wants to know what to do next. Giant explains that the, uh, the Call Me Kenneth connection and that modern droids wouldn't have been programmed with knowledge of a previous robot uprising. That's for, that's a stupid, that would be a stupid piece of knowledge to give them. Someone must have told them about it. Um, and that should be investigated. And Dredd says, well, let's get going because Giant hasn't failed. You know, judges have to work with what they have. And sometimes that means taking big risks. So, you know, you're fine. <laughs> the judges go to investigate the robot. And it was serviced just yesterday, it seems. And the service mech says the same, like, yeah, I fixed him. There was nothing wrong with him. I don't know what happened. But while they were questioning him, the robot hesitated several times, which could be marks of robo-lying. Oh, the shame of robot in, in untruthfulness. I, get, I mean, you know, I think it's, I think part of the programming is what specifically makes them bad at lying, actually, you know. <laughs> um, the judges decide to, to tail the service mech following it deep into the city, entering a janitor's closet with the phrase, with the passphrase, by the grace of Call Me Kenneth. And inside, there's a full-on Call Me Kenneth robo-cult with a Call Me Kenneth on a cross and a robed cult leader who's preaching to them. He's got a familiar voice. Ah, geez, it's that goddamn Walter. Death to the fleshy ones, he says. Next time. Walter the Wobot is revolting. And just more backstory, I guess Walter the Robot is a 
robot that sort of has like a one of those speech impediments where your R's or W's, you yeah. know, <laughs> kind of an Elma Fudd kind of thing. Right. But I, um, before, I right? think he's bumped in. I, I, I probably showed him to you or something like that, but he used to be Dredd's like butler or like home help robot basically until Dredd yeah. kicked him out. So the, he has a, a connection with Dredd and was a big character in the early days of the strip, basically. Yeah, this comic was uh, fun. Seeing this new judge. And it, I was worried it was going to feel Mary Sue-ish. Very like, how awesome I am at everything. Even Dredd it. But mm-hmm. him being a little bit more self-aware kind of gets away. It's just mm-hmm. like... Yeah, I and mean, I think he has some flaws and isn't the best at everything he does and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I'm, And yeah. plus, like, I don't know. For me, I, we've just seen this... like. Also, we kind uh, or I kind of know just from the previous encounters that we've had that he does have some challenges and stuff, mm-hmm. especially during the original story when we learned about the fate of his mother and stuff. He had a lot of like rage issues, sort of overly, mm-hmm. overly violent to other judges, basically, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, like, yeah. he definitely I, had I, some I, downsides. I also really like them. Dread asked, "How oh, you did that verdict? It wasn't like." Oh no, that's too much. It was just kind of like because they're their own judge, jury, and executioner. So it's just like you gave the verdict. That's the verdict. But I just had some follow up questions. Like I, I yeah. would probably gave him this much time. Oh, interesting. I see your see your angle. Is that what yeah. judges do when they're hanging out? Like oh man, I got this one per. Put them in for this long. Man, that's a good amount of like I don't know. Yeah, don't know. yeah, definitely. It's it's less like um like hey, I disagree with that judgment, mm-hmm. and more like. It's kind of, hey, what's your, what's your reasoning behind that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It should be fun. And I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to kind of, I would like to see this character get online as well. I like Judge Giant or I like the previous Judge Giant. I'm always interested in getting more reoccurring Judge characters into the, into, mm-hmm. into the fold, I guess. Just like, yeah. Gives more, more known characters for Dread to kind of bounce off of and stuff like mm-hmm. that, you know? Yeah. It, it lets there be peril because, you know, I'm pretty sure they won't kill Dread, but right. they've already killed one Judge Giant. Like, mm-hmm. it's on the table, you know? Right. <laughs> All right. So now we've, so that's it for Dread. Um, we've got a couple sort of one shots from before the, from issue 49 that we'll just sort of go through one at a time here. Just just some one-off stories and let's get started with those with story two, Calhab Justice. Script robot Jim Alexander, art robot Lowell, lettering robot Annie Parkhouse. So last time, all was complicated, but basically side judge, oh, so sorry, so we're in Calhab, Dread World, uh, Scotland. And last time you saw Psy Judge Shahalian dying a big confrontation with tough street judge Ed McBrain. And now we're at the funeral to pick up the pieces. McBrain sort of talks to the chief inspector and says no more Frankenstein's monsters because they sort of built Shahalian in a lab. And then he found out he had false memories and kind of flew off the handle, Blade Runner style, basically. Um but as he does this, a tear from Shahalian's widow lands on his buried body, and he comes back to life. Oh, jeez. He climbs out of his grave as Ed is as restrained, and he apologizes for his conduct and says he's come to accept that he can't have children. He's a weird, freaky demon dude, I guess, or made in a lab, you know, bottle dude. Um, anyway, look, and it looks like generally Shahalian's abilities are worth the lives that have been lost from his rampage. 
So I guess we're back to it. And while we're at it, just, hey, who else might have false memories? Think about that, McBrain. All right? You never know if you do or you don't. It could always happen. Ed drinks, thinking about the nature of good and evil, angels and demons, and which Shehalian might be. And that is how Shehalian sits with his wife and then uses his powers to stop the rain overhead. Ominous. <laughs> and that's it for Calhab Justice for now. It will return in the fall of this year. There we go. Just quick wrap. Just some wrap-up stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right, this right. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so mm. weird, but we're fine. It's okay, I guess. As always, these legibility problems, etc. No reason to get into Yes. <laughs> right. I'm sure I'll get to that later on. When we get to it. As things mm-hmm. go. All right. Let's go continue on our one shots with story three hark and burr script robot size spencer art robot dean ormston letting robot fiona stevenson all right in the cursed earth our but our antique ing buddies hark had uh hark and burr hark had built an ugly but polite robot and sold it to a bunch of society ladies but now it's gone insane and is running amok oh no Meanwhile, Hark confronts Burr about the broken robot from last time as they hide from the ro- from the murder robot as it sings show tunes. They manage to escape, but the robot shell that it's built on is a Klingarian death droid, which never gives up once it has a target. So it's coming after Hark and Burr. They've got to do something to stop it. And apparently the best option is to rebuild their previous robot, who's Ladybot. The droid finds the antique dealers with a newly rebuilt ladybot, and the two robots quickly fall in love. Um, you know, they're murder droids. They've got a lot in common. You know, they like to kill people. They've got weapons built into their shells, etc. But it turns out that she's built off a model of a Zippian war droid, the Klangarian Empire's ancient enemy. And so they immediately fight to the death, I guess. And now both of Hark's masterpiece robots have been destroyed. Oh, no. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Heartbreaking. Eh? 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 Oh, geez. Terrible tragedy. And a terrible pun. Yes, right. Terrible, terrible tragedy. Terrible pun. Hark and Burr. makes the tragedy more. Absolutely, yes. And and that's it for Hark and Burr. They'll be back in a summer of 1995, so a ways away from now. Sort of reminds me a lot of the uh, original Lichtenstein, how uh, mm-hmm. a thing doing stuff and murdered occasion, you know, whatever. Ask for a bride. Like, well, what if I get both of you? You guys can do double murders. That's bad. But yeah, it's, there's, it, it's, it's interesting. It makes me sad that it's one of those things where it's like, okay, so nothing. It, it all boils down to, okay, so nothing really happened, but... It's like yeah. a slice of life. I mean, I would say all these Harkin Burrs, they're very it's very much a comedy strip. And mm. like with the previous ones, I definitely feel like we sort of, you know, have are working backwards from the punchline, basically. Mm. You know, right. Yeah. That tracks. You know, so it's sort of uh art breaking, eh? Okay, we can mm. gotta make some art. How can right. we turn that into an action sequence? Okay, I've right. got it. Let's go. Let's you know, whatever. <laughs> right. All right, let's finish up our one-shots with story four, Pan-African Judges. Script robot Paul Cornell, art robot Siku, letting robot Gordon Robson. Okay, Pan-Africa, Dread World, Africa, right? Clear. Okay. (laughs) 
So a memory of elephants cross a river as the evil poacher Van Busen sends his goons to attack them. That's the that's the name for a group of elephants, Eli. A memory of elephants. Ooh, I like that. A, a group of turtles is called a creep. That's oh, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I love I, I love collective nouns like a like a murder of crows. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So poetic. It's freaking a rock band. Yeah. Or just yeah, it's you know. It's always just very like a bunch of literature jerks in like the 19th century decided mm-hmm. to be funny, you know. Right. Let, let's confuse the hell out of people for the rest of history, right? That's right. A parliament of owls. You guys can go to hell, whatever. <laughs> Think you're smart. I see how it goes. Um, so evil poacher Van Busen sends his goons to attack them, but the Pan-African judges are there. The judge Kwame finds Van Busen guilty and offers him a chance to surrender for clemency, but Van Busen just laughs, so it's fight time. Lots of fighting here. Heads getting shot and chopped off all over the place. Pretty solid action stuff, and just sort of with this big African, you know, blue African sky background as they go. But Van Busen runs into the elephant stamp or the Mastodon stampede, I guess I should say, and Kwame's wounds have opened up. Judge Becky Steele can't let Van Busen get away and pursues him as the other judges sort of tut-tut, I guess. Van Busen stands in the middle of the stampede and seems safe. He sort of like, in his South African accent, says that like if you stand still, the elephants will just sort of move around you. Like They, they won't trample you if you stand still. Um... Becky fires a missile, and it's not super clear what's going on here, but the missile seems to emit, seems to, like, the African heat throws off the heat seeker missile, I guess. And then suddenly a pirate ship arrives, and Van Busen, or it's a hover ship, you know, not not a boat, a a plane. Uh, Van Busen (laughs) runs to catch it, and Becky's pissed because he's escaped. But the other judges are just happy that no Mastodons died in this exchange of fire. Mm-hmm. Right. That would be my priorities. Yeah. You got to preserve these Mastos. But then they see that Van Busen actually is dead, lying faced out in a shallow puddle as his pirate friends killed him and took the ornamental ivory tusks he had grafted onto his face. No honor among poachers and things like that. Right. This threat is over, the day is saved, and the judges mount up, heading out onto the savannah and their next adventures. The Pan-African judges will return in fall of 1995, so another year to go, and then we'll have some more Pan-African adventures. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think, I don't know if I just missed them doing their judgment the last time, but for some reason when he, you know, judged them guilty, Mm -hmm. my brain was like, what are the chances that Africa would also have the same judicial system as the uh, mega city? They probably would come with a different type of way of ju- anyway. Yeah, I mean we've we've seen some some elements that make the Pan African judge a little different than Mega City One. Right, you know, right. for instance, there's all these different zones within Africa that mm-hmm. are like where the judges don't quite have authority and stuff like right. that. It sort of mm-hmm. is is different, but That's I mean. True. In this dread world, everything's judge. All the governments are judges. There's no right. non-judge governments. It seems mm-hmm. like right, right. But there are different levels of competence and mm-hmm. like willingness to follow the law and stuff like that. Right, right. Like there's no. definitely we've definitely seen like some, for instance, like South American country or um um, um mega cities. 
where being a judge is more just sort of a new form of aristocracy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, corruption yeah. and and semi-racist corruption runs deep, you know. Right. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. You know, and there's all these other, you know, and then there's like the, you know, even the even because even like the communists still have judges in charge of them. You know, they're just sort of mm-hmm. East Meg judges or whatever. I don't right. Know. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. So they're sort of they're different, but sort of still have some elements that overlap, are the same if right. that makes sense yeah yeah definitely. it's still a judge world you know there's right. different ways to look at it yeah. yeah yeah i like it and i guess for pan-african judges i really like uh, uh siku's art i think he draws some really strong musculature i feel mm-hmm. like if, if that makes sense and i yeah. and i like a lot of his like um african scenery and stuff i think that's very cool in in this story mm. i yeah, think yeah, uh, definitely strong yeah. understanding of color and uh yeah composition yeah although i think again and we talked about this the last time we talked about pan-african judges just the story suffers from just wanting to get a lot in at once basically like they're they're trying to hit a lot of different topics at once and i feel like the story kind of suffered from that Mm -hmm. i would have yes like if it had some more time to breathe i would like to see some more focus just on the individual deals with these judges and stuff i think there's a real heavy and the way the story ends even that's some real, we, it's, a, it's not, not weird, sorry, interesting undercurrent of a way of blending this, the concept of judges with like Islam or something like that, mm-hmm. which is right. in, intriguing, I guess, or just sort of mm-hmm. like weird. I, it's again, I don't want to, I keep, I, my mind keeps wanting to say weird, but I guess it's right. sort of just not what I'm used to with these stories and stuff like that. So right. I don't know. Yeah. But that's, I think that's what makes it interesting is trying to yeah. figure out how they're going to how they're going to handle it, what this takes going to be like. Yeah. And I mean, I do appreciate sort of the environmental element. I just mm-hmm. I mean, I will say that the very at the very least, the Pan-African judges aren't all just photocopies of dread mm-hmm. with right. like uh, Melanin. Afri- inj- yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. With a, with a foot, fo- with a, with a, uh, a highly problematic, um, Photoshop <laughs> filter put over them or something like that, you know? <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. Interesting. Like it's not just dread with like a black filter. On it right. No. Exactly. Right. I don't know if I we want to say dread. that specifically, but yeah. Right. <laughs> Sorry. We, put dr- we put dreadlocks on dread and then they put them in Africa. Right. Oh my God. Dreadlocks with an extra D in there. That's, that's right. no good. No good. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> so that's it for our one shot. Let's take a quick break before we start our, our reboot by looking at covers, editorials, and dreadlines. Issue 49, well-made, well-read, well-hard. Mick McMahon is behind this pretty simple dread cover. Um, his style here is controversial, and we'll see more of it next episode, but I kind of like it. It's got a very, like... It's very blocky and sort of simple, like like um, deceptively simple. I guess is, is how I describe it. Yes, yes. I I have personal appreciation for that type of style with simplified and streamlined in that way. Yeah. Yeah. The editorial plugs next issue's big relaunch, and the credit text says, "Well, well, well. What's all this then? Indeed, oi." Um, and a big part of the middle of this issue is the results of the 1993 readers survey. There's some overlap here with our own awards, including a lot of uh, love for Childhood's End and Anderson generally, as well as a request for more Devlin Waugh. Uh, um, John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Robbie Morrison are top writers. Kev Walker, Frank Quitely, and Ian Gibson are top artists. 
And then in Dreadline, there's a lot of letters discussing the difficulties Dread and Magruder are having and sort of just about the fallout of Mechanismo. Um, oh, and sorry, at least one letter both mentions that the there were some unusual Dread thought bubbles at the end of the Mechanismo story, which I, I thought about as well. So happy to see other people agreeing with me, I guess. Um, and then someone wonders about the general continuity of Dread as he appears in more and more places. In 2000 AD, he's in the magazine. There are these novels. He's, there's going to be a DC com- comic coming out soon. Like, how do we know what happens when? And the editor and the editors also have the advice that I usually give about these things, which is don't worry about it too much. Like, it's, it's all right. Work itself right. out. Doesn't matter too much. Right. right. <laughs> anyway, uh, Prague fifth or sorry, I- issue fifty of Volume Two of the magazine. Face the future. Mark Wilkinson does a realistic dread heading forward at speed. As I believe the inside cover, now the editorial page welcomes us to the new magazine. The comic has gained eight pages and gone up in price 15 pence to one pound and 50 or one pound 50 in price. Um, And this issue came with a Judge Anderson temporary tattoo. So you can slam that on yourself. You like that sort of thing. There's also some info about subscription prices, and we learned that new subscribers get the Judge Dread Mega Special for free. <laughs> Only one page of Dreadlines this time, mostly complimenting the uh, bury my knee at wounded heart story, which was very good. Um, and then finally, issue 50, Steve Sampson does this Anderson cover. She knows what you're thinking. And you can really see his uh, mixed media style in here, just in the differences in like detail, I feel like. Um, like this is one of, I, I feel like this is one where like the face is from a model, from like a fashion shoot or something. You can see a ton of detail in the eyes and the lips on, on the cover, but like the hair is just blocks of solid color, for instance. Like there's a lot of variety into what is detailed and what isn't in here. And it feels very 90s to me, I guess. This issue also comes with a free Judge Dread button or or badge, as they call them in England. Um, and then the last issue advertised that back issues are for sale. And we learned from this issue that you can get a back issue of number 50 for its cover price, as opposed to the usual five pound rate. So why not order some more? Come on, we'll take your money. Come on, do it. Um, <laughs> in Dreadlines, Nixon and Sloan are back to criticize things that they don't like. And another reader also has some very strong opinions, especially being anti-black and white comic, which I disagree with. Letters are split about whether they want more world judges, and there's some complaint about the phonetic dialogue in Cal Have Justice. Just like, hey man, like, it's That's weird that you're making these Scots talk like they got in thick Scottish accents, you know? I don't know I how I feel I, about that. I guess I could see that being a little problematic. I guess it's one of those... This feels like one of those those England or like uh, British Isles things where I feel like as Americans, we don't see a lot of difference between Brit- British people and Scottish people. But right. they themselves <laughs> see a lot of differences between them, you know, and so right. you should respect that, basically, <laughs> especially when you're on their turf, you know, when they're actually Scottish as opposed to being right. Americans of Scottish descent or something. That's the way mm. I guess. Anyway. With that, it's time to get back to these thrill to these stories, Eli. And I'm excited because there's some interesting ones in here. A lot of big monsters, actually, in all these stories. <laughs> hidden, hidden right around the corner for some reason. Right. So let's let's get started with Story Five, Shimura. 
Script about Robbie Morrison, art about Colin McNeil, letter about John Beeston. Shamora's back. Uh, and this time we've got Chopper slash America artist Colin McNeil on the case in black and white. And it's a very manga styling, I felt like. I don't know if you agree with me on that, Eli. It sort of has that has yeah. kind of a manga feel. Yeah, I agree. Um, and we're in Hondo sit, of course, Dread World Japan. And they're still using that Chop Suey font that I'm not very fond of. You really mm-hmm. see it in these A's that have kind of a Shinto gate kind of look to them or something like that, I guess. Not a fan of this font. Um, anyway, two girls in a car are driving up to a house and one is surprised to learn that the other is the daughter of a very powerful man. We'll learn more about this. The car stops in front of the bodies of a dead cyber dog and a man in a suit. And the girl whose house this is, Michiko, tells her friend Kyoko to drive away and pretend that she never knew her. Inside the house, a masked intruder takes on cyber soldiers and more cyber dogs. The soldiers have sort of a, a Japanese, like like, like just sort of a, a, a Japanese heraldry symbol on their back, I guess you'd say, um, and give orders to protect the Oyabun at all cost. And I'll say that an Oyabun is the leader of a Yakuza clan, sort of like, like, like a godfather or something like that, like sort of, you know, you use those terms semi-interchangeably, I suppose. Um, and then the figure comes flying in, use a f- nice, real, really nice full page image here. This guy um, flying through this, through the air with a, a body in front of him pro- projecting is like in a black background as white machine gun bullet shots come flying up. It's pretty excellent. <laughs> um at a geisha house, in Judge Inspector Inaba, who the uh, the first Hondo City Lady Judge, and one we met the last time on Shimura, walks in to find the members of the Hondo City Council relaxing in various sort of sauna e wearing a towel poses with ladies available. Basically, it seems like she thinks this is supposed to be a disciplinary meeting, as Inaba cuts someone's leg off or something. But that doesn't matter. In fact, they have a mission for her um, because one of their own has turned rogue and become a ronin, an outcast, and must be stopped. It's Inspector Shimura! <laughs> but didn't he die in a gunfight? Nah, don't worry about it. <laughs> right, why are you bring that up? <laughs> yeah. The hooded figure is in the Yakuza house where we see a man sort of floating in like a rejuvenation tank, basically, surrounded by the mounted heads of his enemies and vats of amputated fingers. The figure breaks the glass, dumping the Yakuza on the ground, and we learn that Inaba, and meanwhile, Inaba is, is, is going to be leading a hand-picked squad to take out Shimmer, with clear implications that she'll be accountable if he's not fought, or if he's not caught, as the hooded figure removes his hood and reveals himself to be Shimura himself. Like, older with a shaved head and stuff he's serious right yes that's how you know (laughs) yeah he kills this yakuza guy as the hondo council prepares to dine on sushi draped on the bodies of naked ladies as you do and it heads out she's not she's not uh she lost her appetite (laughs) we see the house burn as a dread authored narration box explains the concept of japanese honor to us about, I guess, how there's a Yakuza Koban and the Oyabun is on top of that and things like that, I guess. Uh, this girl, Michiko, from earlier is checking the body of the Oyabun 
and Shimura draws a gun on her, but she explains that this body isn't her Oyabun, but rather her actual real-life father. Ooh, and intriguing. All right. <laughs> we see Inaba laying out the details. Shimura was thought dead after an ambush by network assassins that left 12 other judges killed. Now Shimura himself is back and has killed at least 37 uh, Yakuza, mostly from the Igarashi Kai Kobun. He's a master warrior and has stolen Justice Department weapons and vehicles to help him on his quest. One of the squad questions whether Inaba's connection with Shimura will affect her judgment, but she says no. Ronin judges must be taken out. That's just how it must be done. So their mission is to terminate Shimura with extreme prejudice. Elsewhere, oh, so good. Go down. Yeah, I got a feeling there's going to be this is going to be harder than than they're laying it out for sure. <laughs> Elsewhere, some high-ranking judges. Um, Tell, tell us that the squad will be is sure to kill Shim, Shimura and it'll, they'll kill Inaba too if her loyalty falters during the mission. And then the higher up sort of look out over Hondo, sit and do that thing where it's like, uh, but is our society worth saving? As how far we've fallen from honor, Eli? You know, right. think about it, buddy. Fire punch. Oh, God. Anyway, uh, <laughs> sorry. I just read that. And now, whenever we talk about fallen societies on my on all these podcasts, I'm just like, oh, yes. Yes, I've read a lot to think about. Let's watch movies, et cetera. All right. Anyway, um, sorry. Joke for one, one or two people. <laughs> read Fire Punch. Get out of here. It's fun. Guy who's on fire. Solid. <laughs> Can't explain more. Um, Oh, God. Okay. Elsewhere, we see Shimura and Michiko racing on a motorcycle to the spaceport where they find that that other girl, Kyoko, is being held hostage by a bunch of Yakuza jerks. Oh, the worst kind of jerks. They force Shimura to put down his weapons, then reveal that actually Kyoko was part of the Yakuza clan that was going after Michiko's father. It's a deep cover, double cross kind of thing. Oh, geez. Uh, the Yakuza go to fight, and this is clearly a bad idea. At the house from earlier, judges are picking up the pieces, mentioning that the boss's daughter is missing. She was apparently sheltered from all that mob stuff. But there's also, you know, we all know there's always wheels within wheels. Like, what if she was actually the power behind the throne and they pretend she isn't or something like that? You know, she's yeah. been hypnotized to have assassin powers also and something i don't know what's gonna i don't remember what's actually gonna happen eli but i think we're clear that you know something could it'd be on the menu basically definitely need side division here to help you know yeah get through all this in a timely fashion if there's if there's one thing i know it's that the beautiful daughter of a yakuza boss is very complicated and Mm -hmm. like (laughs) i wouldn't underestimate her that's what i'm trying to say right um, at the spaceport, um, some other guys are, or some guys are looking at the dead bodies of those Yakuza that were threatening Shimura. Like there's a de- decapitated head and stuff like that. And then flashbacks to the actual fight as an Oni, which is a Japanese demon, I guess, and this big furry creature chuckles and lips, licks its lips. It's a big furry blob that's just sort of all black with tiny white eyes and a big mouth that sticks out. We're sort of combining manga styling with like some Frank Miller stuff here. I, I would mm-hmm. say for definitely just use of negative space, etc. Um, 
in the past, we see Shimura also killing Kyoko, but keeping Michiko alive for reasons that are not clear, though the Oni says that they are important. Uh, we see it explaining all this to another judge, and it's very concerned about the future. Elsewhere, a woman's on a phone being told that she has no protectors and has to come back to her own old life when Shimura climbs through her window and embraces her. The Oni has released a bunch of bugs that have defleshed the skull of the Yakuza that Shimura killed as the judge sends him back to hell. And the, you know, Oni takes the skull and, and heads off, I guess. I'm not, I'm not sure what to think about this. I'm not sure about the supernatural elements being tossed in here, Eli. <laughs> but next time on Shimura, pain upon pain. Yeah, what, what, what do you think? Uh, it's, yeah, it's definitely, um interest is you know it's a it's an odd take on it uh i remember the last mm. one we were going very sci-fi very yeah cyborg robot guy trying to take over um so them going with a more fantastical element of like you know going with more traditional stuff yeah i i, I want to see if they stick the landing they're doing a, <laughs> interesting somersaults in the oh wow double flip all right let's see if it all lands and comes out nice I guess I'm the same, although I've also seen this particular kind of gymnastic move failed in the past, so I'm a little bit more trepidatious about it, you know? Right. There's right. just it's always, always messy. If you don't get that landing, <laughs> you lose so many points. Like sci-fi, like Judge Dredd sci- in sci-fi Japan, it just, it seems like you don't need demons also. Like there should be plenty just from the baseline story things that we don't need to bring this in at this point. So I'm a little nervous about it, I guess. Right. But no, I, I like the style. I, I yeah. The but I, I, I like the styling. Like it does feel like it is very mm-hmm. like I'm cognizant. This comic is coming out in 1994, which really feels like we've started reading manga. <laughs> you know, like let's, <laughs> let's try to do one. Okay, sure. Yeah. This will be fun. Right. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's a very, very fair uh, observation. Like it, because I, 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 I do feel like McNeil sort of knows the baseline of the art that he's sort of working from and stuff like that. But this also, do, I mean, I don't know. I'm always a little leery of these sort of mystery of inscrutable Japan <laughs> sort of mm. stories, I guess. And just like last time was all sci-fi and mega corpse, this one's all mysticism and the yakuza, you know. Mm. So it's sort of still. Very heavy on on these Japan stuff tropes, I guess. I don't know. Right. Still, I don't know. I'm happy. I'm always happy for sword fight action. I'm always mm. happy for one guy killing a bunch of guys, Eli. Like, that's very... Yeah. I think that should be an Olympic event, you know? Right. Like, I don't know. I just recently learned about conservation of ninjutsu, the trope. Uh, are you familiar with that? Is that the one where... Um, if you fight 20 ninjas, you'll definitely win. But if you fight one ninja, you're in trouble. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they, need, they need to spread out the awesomeness evenly among the group. Um, but um, but yeah. Uh, right. Uh, so, so, so when you fight one, it's all concentrated into one guy. But when yes. you fight 20, it's all spread out evenly among right. them. Right. And you can just give them a light backhand and then they just flip themselves over off the <laughs> off the rooftop. And you're Absolutely. Like, wow. <laughs> It's awesome. I love killing a bunch of dudes. Oh yeah, I've I've I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but for years I've said that um like I would take like like just like synchronized swimming, I would love there to be a like fight choreography as an Olympic event. Oh yeah, that would be you cool. know 
And so just, yeah, so not like, not like, uh, like actual martial arts, like, like Kung Fu or jujitsu where they act, where they're actually fighting, but just how out of control, like, you know, just you're in an open space or maybe you can have like three props or something like that. And then, you know, how insane different countries, martial arts can, can be and stuff. Maybe have one regular and one wire assisted category or like. You know the special like one verse twenty dudes um, category, right? Like yeah. Voted for a vote for Conrad is a vote for uh, new Olympic sports. We gotta I, absolutely I see it. Yeah, that and staring are, are high on the list for sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> you didn't want to take up taxidermy, you, but you, I, I understand the the staring one. I feel like the sci-fi technology isn't there for taxidermy yet, honestly. Mm, like the taxidermy they're doing in there is not quite viable. I, but, I still want the uh, the porn uh, Olympics. Where oh, yeah, like, sex. Yeah, sex. Competitive sex. Absolutely. Yeah, it's freaking we're, we're already kind of seeing that on the Internet. They just need to freaking put a stamp on it and just, you know, get some honestly, federal funding. Yeah, I think making it making it like a highbrow Olympic event will honestly make people watch porn less. Right, know? exactly. <laughs> Make it too too upper class or something. Oh, I'm not I'm, I, I got to wear a tuxedo to watch this sex, you know. <laughs> anyway, people are speaking. Speaking of speaking of people with weird ideas, Eli. Let's go to story five, Missionary Man. Uh, scripted by Gordon Rennie, art robot Frank Quietly, letting robot Annie Parkhouse. I think you should have went. Speaking of sex Olympics, man, that would that doesn't quite work. Holy anyway. shit, that's amazing. <laughs> No, 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 no. That's good. That's good. High five. Like, like remote. All right. In the outside, in, in the prairies beyond Texas City in the in Dread World, Preacher Kane and his buddy Resurrection Joe make their way across the prairie, a skull moon looking down on them when they see a spacecraft come shooting out of the sky. It's so close it knocks them off their horses and they go to investigate some lizard-like monsters that they're calling Gila And we've seen Gila Munga in the past and Judge Dredd, and they don't look anything like this, but I suggest not to worry about it. Um, they, are, they mass around the crater the ship has crashed into when a big gray being covered in heavy muscles, pair of horn horns, far too many long, thin teeth, and like a little like greyhound whip tail comes crawling out of the, out of the wreckage. Um, it, it's, its hands have three fingers with long claws. And in narration, Kane talks about how tough and scary the Gila Munga are as the beast rips them to pieces and eats their guts. It's like a big sandwich. Um, after that, it shouts at the remainder of the creatures that it hasn't killed yet. This is the blood of our covenant. And it's become boss of the pack, I guess. The, the creature and its new servants head out into the night and in the morning, the lawmen check the crashed ship, which is called the Morning Star, ominously, uh, trying to figure out what happens. As he checks it out, Preacher Kane quotes from both par- the, the poems Paradise Lost and The Second Coming and announces that this big gray dude just might be some kind of antichrist. It's the worst kind of Christ. Think right. about it. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, um... The, the two lawmen are taking shelter in a cave from a dust storm. Kane working to fix the ship's flight recorder to learn more about the beast. Meanwhile, at some church or mission house or something, the mutant 
uh, or a mutant with a we- with weird head ridges asks the Lord for divine protection, but instead the front door of the church is kicked in by the beast or whatever, the gray skin guy. He introduces himself, the beast of the Badlands, the mutant messiah, Mr. Bad Moon Rising. Um, he says his name is Legion, for he is many, and he's here to bring salvation as the slaughter begins. Jeez, come on. Yeah, so... Kane has got the uh, flight recorder working again and reads into it. Legion is some kind of super mutant found out in the Texas Badlands. It's got a, per, a per, uh, malevolent personality and is just super powerful and super evil, regenerate from the dead, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it said, and when asked who it is, it just keeps quoting that um, Bible quote, um, my name is Legion. For or yeah, my name is Legion. For he, for we are many, which is what uh, the devil says to Jesus when Jesus asks who he is during his temptation, like that. Um, yeah, whole thing. Finally, they tried to kill Legion, but it survived five different attempts and just started, you know, just laughed at them when they did. In the end, nothing to do but putting in a ship and send it to a supermax prison on the moon. When in doubt, Eli, I send all my problems to space. <laughs> but as they did, the, but w- when they did, the ship had a mechanical mishap or there was divine intervention and the beast escaped and now it's on the loose. Um, yeah, the preacher can't explain that Legion is another name for the devil out here on the land. And we see Legion back at the church where it preaches its good word to the people that it has slaughtered. It's time to call the faithful to prayer. It shouts and across the cursed earth. The toll of a bell is heard, and dark disciples, living and dead, hear the call of the beast and come running. Cain uh, and Joe leave their cave and see the moon is now a skull with a mouth gaping wide open as the worst people and zombies in the West come running towards the church where the where Legion is. Next time on Missionary Man, Wasteland. Nice. Uh, start. I do worry there taking a very large bite out of this they're like seems like a lot of setup like all right we got want to do this antichrist thing so do we have any foreshadowing no let's just do all that right now yeah so uh but i understand they're on limited time but uh yeah i mean in in the end they sort of have to do it all in you know a couple pages and stuff like that mm -hmm. i do think it's a big bite um you know having this weird crazy cowboy guy fight the actual devil but (laughs) Right. But I also yeah. guess that since he's a preacher, the devil is sort of par for the course for him, yeah, you know? Right, exactly. There is there is precedent. I'm so worried that they're just going to move on, where I'm like, I want to know. I want this guy ongoing. Do we mm-hmm. continue? But I, I'm like, they're just going to shoot him in the forehead with some sort of, or like do some cross thing, and then he's going to die. Yeah, but, I think at least if, if we if we get a couple issues of fight out of it, I think that's all we can really look at. Right, right, yeah. Uh, I'm they they piqued my interest. I'm gonna wa- I'm gonna watch it regardless. I also like that they um uh justified the uh, ship crash. It was like oh ship crash. Like, oh there's an alien. Like oh no, it was from here. Went to space. Came back. Is coincidentally we're just right next to you, and yeah. that's why it's it's an issue. And I'm like okay, I, I at least uh, appreciate that. Absolutely. I do think it's interesting that both Missionary Man and Shimura have kind of a 
big muscly demon type thing mm. with like a gaping maw and stuff like that. That's mm. a weird coincidence, I guess. Uh, you want just a nondescript problem, you know, that's all you need. It's something evil uh, in shadow, really epic, you know, shading on it, a mouth that has way too many teeth in it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, some uh, some big muscles and some eyes that pierce through the night. Absolutely. Yeah, it's fine. This, these, these are the tropes, you know. But speaking of an all-powerful villain that doesn't quite have a uh, the standard form, Eli, let's go to Story 6, Creep. Script Robot Cy Spencer, Art Robot Kevin Cullen, Letter Robot Gordon Robson, Creep's back. Oh, woo. They're not really into Creep. I don't know. Right. Right. I'm um, hoping I like it more this time, but my hopes aren't very high. I would like to, but, you know, we'll see. Um, anyway, flashback to Necropolis when the Dark Judge is preparing to destroy the city. And when they did, the creep showed up to say hi and had some wacky interactions with the Dark Judges, generally just doing like some Bugs Bunny stuff to them. You know, like, oh, you're really cool. Like, shake my hand. Let's get a selfie. That kind of thing. In the end, Judge. In the end, he's very annoying, and Judge Death checks him and finds no living soul within him. So the Dark Judges just decide to leave the area and are freaked out. Like I don't like this guy. Go over. Let's go over here and menace the people on this side of town. <laughs> and slightly disappointed, Creep heads back to the Undercity. Prologue of Creep. All right, now actual Creep. Back in the day, Judge Roberts was a good judge, but he asked too many questions, especially of Judge Gunn. So Judge Gunn took him out. Um, but in turn, Gunn was forced to take the long walk to the Undercity, you know, when judges sort of make problems or have to retire. And they either, sometimes they go to prison, but if they didn't quite do enough wrong, and so they take the, the long walk, which is often out into the cursed earth, but can also be into the Undercity beneath Mega City 1, of just kind of, hey, go out, head out. We're tired of seeing you. Just go and kill mutants until the mutants kill you, basically. Um, now, Gun's down there. He's added some bones and skulls to his uniform and just sort of understudied his, his thing up a little bit. And back in the upper city, a judge named Casey, it seems, froze in combat. And Dread senses her to take the long walk as well. And so into the undercity she goes. Soon after she heads in, though, she loses her footing and lands in a lake full of sewer gators. But before she can be eaten, she's pulled out of it by Judge Gunn, who is the senior judge down here. Casey introduces herself. We learn that she's a Psy judge, which is interesting. And they head to Gunn's HQ, where he has a two-headed gator named Cerberus as a mascot. And we'll see the rest of the judges in the area who are... A bunch of skeletons in uniforms standing up in sort of a back closet, which is disturbing. (laughs) Looking at all this through vid screens is that dang creep who has fallen in love with Judge Casey. He must go rescue her because that gun is completely mad. Ah, but the creep's crazy too. Oh, geez, it's a problem. Next time on the creep, gun for fun. I don't know. Interesting. Kind of interesting. Let's see where it goes. Exactly right. Yep. I I hold judgment to uh, pass it out at a later time. In general, though, I just want to go on the record again as saying that I am not as charmed by the creep as they clearly think that I should be, basically. Yeah. Yeah. We, we all love Bugs Bunny. 
Like it's it's fine, but you don't need to put him into your epic sci-fi cop undercity thing. Yeah, there's exactly. But yeah, you're right. I think that's maybe the annoying part is that they're painting him in a way like you love this stuff. Look at what we're doing. Like, no, I don't. You could you could skip that part. You don't need to. You don't need to go. I think I think the prologue part, especially where it's like. You know, the dark judges are sort of the ultimate bat or almost the ultimate. I mean, they've been they become sillier as the years have gone by. Mm-hmm. But, you know, especially Necropolis, they're at their height of their like these guys are like the biggest and the strongest guys and Mega City barely survived their attack and stuff. Mm-hmm. And here's and this guy showing this guy. up. Yeah. And he's like, you know, outclasses them, actually. So they just decide right. to like run away, basically. Right. Like, OK, yeah. Like, it's very much assuming that we really like the creep, and so this is fun. But right. instead, it's like, nah, this seems disrespectful. I don't know. <laughs> Something right. like that. I was watching, uh, but it's, uh, they have um, comic relief characters that show up, and mm-hmm. they come in, and they completely derail the plot. It's like, we're in the middle of this really epic moment, tensions are high, and then someone comes in, and they just kind of do a stupid joke that isn't actually funny, and doesn't do, and no one, and then all the characters are like, that's dumb. We don't even, we don't think that's funny. <laughs> like, all right and then they just sit back down it feels a little bit like that like possibly um, yeah like why is this why is this here oh well you know we thought the good idea shove this over here totally well, it wasn't ah <laughs> come on no we'll i agree yeah it's, I'll but still wait past the but, yeah like, listen I, like. as always my mind is open and hopefully this will work out you know Ooh, that optimism conrad Absolutely. And uh, speaking of uh, optimistic journeys, let's go to Story 7, Anderson, Side of Vision. Script about Alan Grant, art about Steve Sampson and Tony Luke, learning about any park house. So after the story Childhood's End, we saw side judge Cassandra Anderson quit the Justice Department and head out into space. And so now we're finally catching up with her and we're going to see her space adventures in this series called Postcards from the Edge, which will have a bunch of different artists and just sort of be her traveling around having mind-bending space adventures, basically. Um, yeah, starting with uh, Britsit Babe artist uh, Steve, Steve Sampson here. And I, but I should say also, just before we get started, this is the first real episode we're recording after the death of Anderson author Alan Grant. Um, he died earlier this year in, in 2022. Um now, I mean, of course, that won't affect us for years to come because he'll have a lot of stuff in here being until before 2022. But Alan Grant was really amazing, talented, a ton of writing, both for for 2000 AD and, and the magazine, but also for stuff like Batman. And he was a key creator of a couple of big Batman characters and stuff like Anarchy and stuff. And it's just a really great talent. It's very, you know, very sad to. Uh, so with that, here we go. In Mega City One, Judge Dredd is at the firing range when he gets a postcard. I saw the Shogun Supernova and live to send this card, it says. And it's from Judge Anderson, of course. She's on Dreaver's World and has changed her outfit a bit. She's got two regular shoulder pads instead of an eagle with no badge and a yin-yang belt, belt buckle. She's gotten a job scanning people as they get on board some kind of space bus. She orders a guy with a star-covered chaps and bullseye glasses to be um, further interrogated, but nothing's found. He let, he's, he's let aboard. The bus is going to a part of the galaxy where a bunch of uh, tourists can watch a supernova happening. Supernova actually happened 100 years ago, but with light speed and stuff, you know, the light, like the 
image of the supernova happening is just about to reach where they are, basically. Um, they can tell what happened with the radio. Anyway, um, yeah. But as they set up to watch the explosion, that Star Chaps guy announces that he has a bomb. And actually, it's he says he is a bomb because there's like nitroglycerin hidden in his blood. There's a bio bomb kind of dude, that dastard. He's going to blow them up with the star to strike a blow against the rich and powerful. Anderson goes to take care of it, lingering, uh, scanning his brain, lingering briefly on the images of pain, sadness, and desperation that underpin his mind. And suddenly she has the view screens of the ship lifted and the bright lights of the supernova bursting through, burning out this man's eyes. And then Anderson just punched him right in the face. <laughs> Destroying his eyes stopped the blinking base bomb trigger. Hooray. Anyway, that's the, that's the letter, but Dredd just rips it off unread because Anderson is just a perp. He doesn't read, doesn't correspond with criminals. And the last lines of the postcard is Anderson guessing that this is exactly what would happen. <laughs> like, why am I writing you anyway? You're just going to tear it up because I'm a perp, right? Like, come yeah. on. <laughs> that's right ne- on the nose, right? Yeah. Next, Tony Luke takes over on art. And I feel like both his art and, and Samson's art kind of, they feel like they're they're like like they're mixed media almost, or like they're they're drawing a comic based on existing like photographs, or mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense. Like yeah, a lot of yeah, like a lot of the stories in this one, like like a lot of the pictures and faces in this one seem like they're sort of like they're very realistic because they might be based on an existing image, and then sci-fi stuff has been yeah, added on to it or something. It reminded me of the one where uh, that one girl had um, pyrokinesis. Yeah, Britsit uh, Babes. Yeah, that's the Steve. Yeah, that was Steve, Steve Sampson who, who did the first story. Who did the art for Britsit Babes as well. So yeah, so it's 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 same artist there. Okay, cool, nice. I'm so good. Listen, uh, we're picking up on these styles, Eli. We're professional art critics or something. Right. <laughs> um. Anyway, Anderson's been fired from that. Uh, tour bus job because the tourists missed the supernova with the terrorist stuff she's writing this letter to side judge karen and anderson is currently space hitchhiking she heads into a pilot bar and a space horse makes a move on her and she decks him she doesn't want these pilots to be handsy but she does want a ride through space for free and listen all right Gas, grass, or ass, Anderson. Nobody rides for free. One of those three. (laughs) The terrifying faces of the alien pilot suggest that she try the spin drift. In a spaceship, Anderson meets that pilot, a Biorg, which is basically a human head wired into all these circuits and space stuff, essentially. Anderson is shocked, but gets over it quickly. The spin drift wants to get paid in words and has Anderson tell her story. But the spindrift is distracted by the nature and size of space. It's big and cool. <laughs> we learn that she gave up her humanity to pilot this spaceship and doesn't really regret it, honestly. Soon they're shipping out with some space wrestlers on their way to a big galactic match. They enter faster than light travel, but eventually the spindrift asks to see Anderson and they briefly use Anderson's psychic powers to swap bodies. Anderson spends a moment in unity with the living universe, and it's this whole big deal. The ship is a child of the universe, and I guess that's pretty cool. (laughs) 
And that's it for that. We're on to the next one next time. Superstars of Galactic Wrestling. Well, I'm going to make a lot of wrestling references in that one, Eli. So I hope yeah. you're ready. I don't even oh, know what's going to happen. You know what I'm Man. like. Yeah. I got you preparing my mind. Uh, that was weird. Just seemed like a weird Anderson road trip. Uh, I do wish they would have just told us that she did drugs at the beginning before. And then mm. had me to have to infer it. Like, I get it. You're I. I see the implication. Yes, uh, yeah, she's very much having having trippy, trippy space adventures here, you know. Right. Uh, but yeah, I did the collage uh, element of the story bothered me a lot. I do wish just trace it, like it's fine, but don't don't just mm-hmm. have the image and be like that. There it is. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, both both of these guys have art styles that I'm not huge on I, I i guess versus other stuff but we'll have other artists coming in here as well yeah it's gonna be a couple say, varieties of guys they should have hired me i could have like you could have given me these exact same pages and i could have uh, just draw over it and just kind of make it a little bit more illustrative uh mm. i'd be but, interested to see yeah. your takes on 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 this sort of thing actually eli although mm-hmm. they couldn't have hired you because it was 1990 because this is 1994 and i think right, i was been only like, four years old i was just yeah a, I was not just a chap. not not quite in a drawing mode professionally mm-hmm. at that point i guess you know? i guess that that is tr- that's the uh, challenge of the past you know yeah and and i think that I, my my feelings on it are because i do understand that this is work take time it's, mm-hmm. it is effort but uh i can tell the places where they did draw did photoshop where they overlaid Mm-hmm. And it just it goes against my consistent. If you're gonna do it, mm. be consistent. Do it everywhere. I want a homogenous uh, thing when you're done with. It. Yeah, I mean, I, I I will say like I agree with you. Although I kind of think that that sort of inconsistency of piece to piece is sort of part of the the technique the that they're uh, using here. I yeah. guess I don't like, but it's one of those things where that's the charm and maybe I don't find it particularly charming, I uh-huh. guess. But, you right. know, I think it's one of these things where it's one of those like, well, I've got criticism, ah, but that's like the point or something like right. that. Right, exactly. I, I yeah, guess. No, I, I, get, you know. I get that vibe a lot from it. Yeah. It's like, this is what we wanted because we like it. Yeah, like this is a very specific style that they're going for here. Yeah. Right. All right. With that, Eli, we've reached the end of our stories. And so I must know. What are your top bottom stories for these three issues? Uh, let's see. That's tough because I don't know the creep on bottom. That's fair. Or always or a... the last. Hmm. Mm. Let me take a quick gander. It might be because I liked um, is it a uh, uh, giant? I liked mm-hmm. that story a lot. Just more from the world. I liked uh, the first story we started with, which just the, it's too hot out here and we're yeah. all dying. Like, I, hey, that's all I need. I I enjoy that. Uh, what was that one that would uh, judge dread do the wrong thing right? mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah so i'll put those two on top i'll put um nice. giant do the wrong thing on top and then i'll put the uh anderson road trip on bottom uh anderson road trip mostly for uh just me and my persnickety freaking i want my comic drawn yeah me not be able to look past it and no no I like what for, you like 100 percent. absolutely right and creep for uh just kind of I took it as pretentious, but it might not be, but that's how it registered to me. Isn't Creep so cool? Look what he's doing with Judge Death. I mean, mm-hmm. Judge Death would murder Creep. Yeah, I, get out of here. I, I, yeah, I don't I don't know. If, maybe, I, maybe I'm becoming too much of a fan that I have way too many weird opinions. I mean, we've been doing this podcast strong. for a little while. You know, like we're, we're 70 issues in or whatever. And listen, right. like 
why not have opinions about things? You know, <laughs> it's <laughs> <Right>. fun. <laughs> but yeah, what are uh, your top and bottom? Oh man, I might agree with you. Actually, I thought Dread was really fun. Um, I did like this sort of one shot of do the wrong thing. And then I like this giant one of just continuing themes and characters that I've seen in the past and stuff. Like, you know, I spent a lot of time explaining the backstory (laughs) to you, but for me who actually, you know, has all the backstory in my head, it's very like, Ooh, I know this. Like I've seen these, I understand this reference. Very nice. Yeah. I could, I could have predicted you like a giant just based on how, uh, um, Right, right. On on how much wind-up I had before I started describing it, sure. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Yeah, you can break it in half. Half of it was just Conrad explaining the context, and the other half is this is actually what what happened to me. Listen, I have to believe that at this point people are here because they like hearing me explain comics, so I try to do it. That's that's what I'm here, so yeah, I think. think Oh, man. I will say I'm also enjoying uh, Shimura. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got some I've got some qualms about it, but I, but I still just kind of like some cyber samurais shooting things and stuff, or you know, just cutting things up and stuff like that. There's a couple really arresting images from this issue that I thought were really good. Um, so that's sort of lower, like still towards on the metal stand, but not quite number one. But yeah, dreads on my top, and I'll definitely have creep on the bottom because I don't like him coming. I don't like this cousin Oliver showing up and being the best at things. Get out of here! That's the Mary Sue stuff, you know. Right? Come on. <laughs> Although I also sort of these, I like some of this Anderson stuff, but it is very um. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of these art styles either, and um, I don't really like, I'm not a huge fan of these vignettes either, because the very much the vignettes are, like, they're sort of working to, like, each one seems to be having some sort of, like, and that's the way of the universe, uh, right. like, think about it kind of right. stuff yeah. that I'm just less into, I guess, yeah. or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think I... I really liked Anderson for her just blue dread, the kind of like mm-hmm. her being the humanity and the uh, appreciation of life and free will opposed to an uncaring, cruel reality. Mm. And it feels like they've lost a little bit of that. Yeah, and I guess when I, she, yeah, when she's not bouncing off dread, she's just kind of a hippie, I guess, and sort of right. like. <laughs> and, and I mean, like, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Like, okay, she, okay, okay, Moonbeam, whatever. Right. Uh, I think if they even they just juxtapose it because it don't even needs to be dread like um, if it's just something or person that's like everything's pointless. Here's the ironclad, you know, no, no slack given. And then her being like, maybe give a little slack. I'm like, all right, now I'm, I'm in. I'm back in. Yeah, yeah she's better with the counterpoint. Like, yeah, that's a good that's right, a good exactly. call, actually. Yeah. But if everyone's just just doing drugs and just punching horses, I'm like, all right. So, uh, OK, sure. Go for it. Why? Who cares? Good call. Right. Yeah, no. I, I, I really agree with that, actually. I think that that's a great call, for sure. Oh, man. All right. But we're continuing our journey, and I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Big Meg One on iTunes, Twitch, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site at BigMeg1.com. Contact at BigMeg1.com, at gmail.com, 2080 forums, or our Facebook or Twitter pages, Big Meg one O-N-E, and you'll find us. And hey, why not give us a rating or review wherever it is you listen to us or suggest us to someone looking for a cool podcast. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardingham, and your friends, the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and support this show, check out our Patreon 
at patreon.com slash Cradline. That's the podcast network. You can support the show and get advanced episodes. Come back next time as we continue our current thrills and the controversial Howler story starts in Judge Dredd. It's art by Mick McMahon. I'm pretty excited for it. And until then, I'm Codrat, there you lie, and we are Big Neck One. Drogger.